welcome back to another edition of the ASAP Equal Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jason Woods. Today's discussion is going to center on chest pain patients and who we can safely rule out. Our first speaker is going to be Dr. Eric Hess, who's the vice chair at the University of Alabama, Birmingham in the Department of Emergency Medicine. And after Dr. Hess will be Dr. Frank Peacock, who's the vice chair at Baylor in Houston in the Department of Emergency Medicine. And finally, we'll finish up with Dr. Simon Mahler, who's the Director of Clinical Research at Wake Forest. All three of them are going to discuss different pieces of what protocols we can use to rule out low-risk patients. Their literature here is quite voluminous, and it's easy to feel overwhelmed. So we asked Dr. Hess to help us review it. First up, Dr. Hess, can you line us up with some definitions? Let's focus on some key definitions. If you're reading this literature, it's not the type of uh, terminology that we're taught. Um, any of the residency or medical school and much of our CME literature, but it will help us make the next step forward. Four key terms. The first is a limit of blank. And from a, a way to wrap your mind around this, just think of this as the deponent level that, that would be measured if you're measuring water. For the clinical chemists, they actually do use a zero calibrator and they put it in the sample. But for us, that's uh, what their deponent level would be if we were just measuring water. The limit of detection of the LOD is the lowest measurable deponent concentration. This is going to be particularly relevant with our new high-sensitivity assays that there is a a difference between the limit of detection and the 99th percentile upper reference limit. And one way to think of this 99th percentile upper reference limit is really at the cut point. And below this cut point, you want to be confident that 99% of your population is actually truly going to be healthy. They're not going to have an acute coronary syndrome. And the way these would ideally be defined, it would be a large cohort of patients that are similar to those that you care for normally in your practice. And if you were to measure them all and be confident that they were not having acute coronary syndrome, you'd want to define a cut point below which 99% of those individuals would actually be classified as healthy. And the fourth definition that I haven't highlighted yet is called the coefficient of variation. This is a term that when you see that term coefficient of variation in your mind, just have a category that has more to do with the reliability of the assay itself. If you were to measure the same sample twice, how much variability would there be in the reported value? And this is really relevant when it comes to serial deponents to distinguish between chronic troponin elevations and those that are due to an acute coronary syndrome or MI. You know, one thing that I've wondered is why do we even discuss the high-sensitivity troponin assay? Most U.S. hospitals aren't using them, and since there's only one approved for use in the U.S., what's the theoretical purpose, assuming that many of our listeners are listening from the United States? So there's two major concepts here. If you can detect lower levels, you can also detect it sooner from the time of onset. So the new high-sensitivity troponins are both more sensitive and more rapid in their ability to detect acute myocardial infarction. They also are more precise. And so if you were to take the same sample at the same time point and measure it twice in the same machine, there's less variability. You know, with other tests we've looked at, one of the concerns as you get more and more sensitive is false elevations or elevations of what you're looking at from a cause that isn't pertinent to you. So specifically with the troponin and a non-ACS cause, can you discuss that? This has become even more of a challenge with the high-sensitivity assay as we can measure troponin at lower levels because there's causes of abnormal values that are both related to the instrument itself or how the sample was collected. That would be the analytical causes of troponin elevation. There's also cardiac causes that are not ACS-related, such as pericarditis or severe heart failures. Finally, there's extra cardiac causes, such as a severe pulmonary embolism that can cause an acute troponin elevation. And because of this challenge, we're going to be picking up more of these as the high-sensitivity component becomes really relevant to determine a significant difference between serial samples. 
identify a true rise and fall of the troponin level to diagnose acute myocardial infarction. So I've walked you through some of the background information. It's important to understand some of the strategies that high-sensitivity troponin is going to be integrated with a very low decision limit at earlier time points. The serial samples are actually going to be moved to earlier time points as well because it's more rapid. And then we're going to need to have a difference or a delta between samples to help us distinguish between chronic troponin elevations and those that may be more acute and related to an MI. Um, now I'm going to highlight three different pathways that were recently published this year by Bettinghaus and colleagues. And the pathways that were highlighted here are a single sample pathway in which there's a troponin that's less than 5 nanograms per liter. And then there's a one-hour strategy, which is the next column to the right, which has the same initial cutoff of less than 5 nanograms per liter, and you recheck it within an hour, as long as your second sample is not greater than 2 nanograms per liter difference. So if the second sample, for example, is 6, then that would be considered a negative delta, and you could safely send that patient home. That's the one-hour protocol. And then finally, the zero one-hour protocol is a combination of those two, that the patient presents at least three hours from the pain of time of pain onset, and the initial level is less than two nanograms per liter. Remember that that's actually the limit of detection for this particular assay, the troponin I assay that's tested by Bettinghaus and colleagues. So what they're saying is they'll let initial troponin level below the limit of detection, at least three hours from pain onset, you can effectively roll out MI. And then the other combination would be that 5 nanogram per liter level at, at presentation and without a significant delta uh, within an hour. So Bettinghaus and colleagues compare these different pathways. The first one is what they described as a limit of detection pathway, and that's where the patient presents with chest pain and their troponin is less than 2 nanograms per liter, less than the LOD. In this particular case, they identified all NSEMIs in their cohort. They were only able to exclude 16% of the patients with possible acute coronary syndrome with that initial sample, and so they weren't able to siphon off a significant proportion of their population with that approach. And so in order to try to remedy that, they increased the cutoff from 2 nanograms per liter to 5, and in doing so, the number that they potentially rule out safely would be 54%, but in, that, in making that one change, they missed 13 MIs there. And so this particular study does not recommend using the less than 5 cutoff for the high-sensitivity troponin I assay as, as a pathway that would be safe. The third option is one I highlighted earlier where you have an initial value that's less than 5, and then an hour later it's less than the 2 nanograms per liter difference between the two samples. And uh, this approach missed 7 MIs that had a negative predictive value of 99.5%, and you could safely roll out MI in half of the patients with possible ACS. And then the final pathway, the combination of the two, were you have your initial limit of detection measurement of less than 2. And if that's the case, you could effectively rule them out for MI. Or if it's greater than 2, but less than 5, and the delta is negative, or it's not 2 nanograms per liter greater than the previous, or less than the previous measurement, then you could also rule out MI. And this performs similarly uh, with a negative predicted value of 99.5%. Okay, to summarize there, for this discussion, the pathway options are either to just obtain an initial troponin and consider it negative if it's less than 2. This doesn't miss any MIs, but doesn't rule out very many. The second option would be to measure a delta at 1 hour if the initial is less than 5 and the follow-up is no more than 2 higher. This still misses some MI, but rules out 50%. The last is to combine them. If the initial is less than 2, and then you measure a follow-up at 1 hour, and if it is less than 2 higher, you consider it negative. 
This performed similarly in that you could effectively rule out half of the patient. All those three were described by Bettinghouse, which you had referenced. Now, there are an additional two options that were described by Chapman et al. Can we talk about that? The first one's called the High Sensitivity Evaluation and ACS Pathway, or the High ACS Pathway, and the second is the um, ESC Conventional Pathway, and that's a zero and three-hour pathway. So the High ACS Pathway enabled us to identify or rule out patients for MI in three different possibilities. The first one is if it's pain onset is at least two hours prior to presentation, and the initial value is less than five nanograms per liter, then they could be rolled out for MI. But if they don't meet those criteria, you can check the high sensitivity troponin I again at three hours, and if there's less than a three nanogram per liter difference, and the absolute value is less than a 99th percentile, then that patient will be rolled out. And finally, if they don't meet either of those two criteria, you can recheck it again at six hours, and then it would be if the absolute value is less than 99th percentile upper reference limit, the patient can be ruled out for MI. And then on the right of the slide is the ESC zero and three-hour pathway. Compared to all these other pathways, this is the only pathway that, that was reported here that uses the 99th percentile upper reference limit as the cutoff, and it actually underperformed compared to the other pathways that proposed a lower cutoff between the limit of detection and the 99th percentile. But in this pathway, you measure troponin at zero hours as long as the patient's pain began at least six hours prior to presentation and the first troponin value was less than the 99th percentile. But if the patient presented, for example, at three hours, you would do a measurement at presentation and then at three hours later, and as long as both of them are below the 99th percentile and there's less than a 50% difference between the two, they would be ruled out for MI. And so Chapman and colleagues compared these pathways. That high SDACS pathway only had four false negatives or missed four MIs, and the negative predictive value was 99.5%. But the ESC pathway missed 20 MIs, and the negative predictive value dropped to 97.9. There's research that's starting to recommend ruling at MI with a single troponin if the troponin level is below the limit of detection, and the test pain onset was at least three hours ago. But remember, this is the caveat. This is research done with different troponin assays than we can use here in the United States at this moment in time. Uh, but it's important to know that this is the direction the literature is going and to keep your eye out for that. The remainder of the strategy is have cut points below the 99th percentile, and then they recheck it within one to three hours, so there's still serial troponins that are important, and they also have a role for clinical risk scores. All right, so since you mentioned risk scores, let's go ahead and talk with Dr. Peacock about risk scores in the setting of high-sensitivity troponin. I think it is a tenuous time right now for troponin, and Eric did a great job of just reviewing all that. We are currently changing from a contemporary troponin, which is not very sensitive, to a high-sensitive one. If you're wondering what kind of troponin you have, it's the one that says nanograms per mil. That's a contemporary one. That's done on a scale of not very good. And as we move to nanograms per liter, we get whole numbers. But to convert those, if your cut point now is 0.04, that's the equivalent of 40 in the high sensitivity one. So it's going to be a big change, and we have to pay attention to it. If we get it wrong, we're going to harm people. One of the ways to get at this is including a decision rule, and that's where I'm really going to focus the rest of this talk. I'm not going to get down in the weeds of troponin. And what it's all about is safely reducing the number of hours that patients spend in our ER and how can we increase the discharge rate in these patients safely? 
because we know that 85% of patients who show up in your department with chest pain will rule out and be fine. And when they have a stress test, it'll be negative. About 15 to 20% will either rule in or have a positive stress test. I care about both of those patients. They're at risk. And so we have to come to the point where we can get some of those patients who will ultimately rule out out of the department. And they don't all need workups. Getting the right group appropriately discharged is really a challenge. And the converse is true as well. I could admit everybody, and I'd have no risk for me, but at some point you harm people because they go in the hospital and they get pneumonia from hospital-acquired pneumonia. So what I'm going to talk about is accelerated diagnostic protocols. It is not to try to figure out what they have. It's try to identify the population of people who don't have anything that's cardiac and come go home. And the general approach to that is an EKG, two troponins, and some risk score. Unfortunately, there are very, very few, you can label them on one hand, of prospectively validated accelerated diagnostic protocol studies. And, and I'll talk about some of them. The, the preponderance of the data on the retrospective view of this has been with Timmy. Timmy has been around forever. It was derived in an inpatient population, and it rates age, risk factors, troponin, angina, and aspirin in the last week. The more points you have, the higher your risk, and the risk is significant. It's a two-week adverse cardiac event score. Two weeks, a real emergency doctor endpoint. If you're going to have a heart attack in two weeks, I want to take care of it now. If you have a TIMI score of four, the risk of that happening is uh, one in five, 20%. So you've got to have a really low TIMI score to say you have really low risk. And the reality is the TIMI score is not held up as well as the other scores. The other two scores I'm going to talk about is the heart score. Heart score has prospective validated data. It is probably the most common score in the United States. It is not my favorite score because it starts with gestalt. The very first thing is history. You get points for that, and I can honestly make the history be whatever I want it to be based on how nervous I am about the patient. And so when we start looking at discharge rates, it is a sensitive score, but it admits more people than other scores. The EKG and troponin levels are part of an accelerated diagnostic protocol, and then you add in age and risk factors and you get the heart score. And the last score I'm going to talk about is EDACS. It's Emergency Department Assessment of Chest Pain Score. It is only objective. There is no opinion in it. It is the history. And to get in the score, you have to be between 18 and 50-year-old with coronary disease symptoms and greater than two risk factors. Your age is a range, and you get more points for age, so you have to use your cell phone to figure that out. And the signs and symptoms are sweat, shoulder pain, worsen the inspiration, or reproduce with palpation. And that's it. Now, all of these scores, TIMI, HEART, EDAX, and their other scores, have been validated predominantly with high-sensitive proponents. So what does that mean to the U.S.? It's a challenge. This is one of the very few prospective evaluations of all these scores in a head-to-head -head fashion. Most head-to-head -head fashions use retrospective validation. And how do you guess what the history was, high, medium, or low risk, on a retrospective chart review? You can't. So retrospective evaluation of these scores is a joke. So I did want to ask you specifically about a study that you'd previously published on where you asked a whole bunch of emergency room doctors to fill out risk scores and evaluated how well they performed. Can you go into that study and then what did you find? 458 patients. We made all the emergency docs do all the scores. The heart score with the heart two means heart with two troponins and EDAX performed the best. The GRACE score, not even usable, TEMI not that great, and heart with one troponin doesn't perform that well. So in this prospective trial, you need to have either heart or EDAX with two troponins. This slide looks at what we found out when we applied the contemporary American troponins to 
these scores. Clinical gestalt there missed 5.9% of patients who ultimately were shown to have MI. It is not acceptable. Gestalt doesn't win. And heart, you can look at with a 1, gets a 4.7. Heart 2, 4.1. EDAX gets a 1. And that's a borderline good score uh, with that. Well, these are the cut points they use on the left there. 3 for heart 1. Timmy gets a 0. Grace gets 50. EDAX gets 15. So if they are below those numbers, you're supposed to be able to discharge them. So how do you get doctors to do this? I mean, to be honest, it's really hard to change doctors' behavior. They don't want to do it. They've never done it before. They tend to want to do what they've always done because that's what's always worked before. And so making them discharge more people with chest pain is a nervous experience for them. They're not excited about doing it. The standard study to evaluate a new strategy, it's called a step wedge design. And what you see is your hospitals are labeled in the column on the left there, says one through seven, and then months are across the bottom. And what you do in a step wedge design is you add in a hospital to perform a new strategy. In this case, is they're going to use a new score and a, a troponin and then do that for a period of time. And then a month or two later, another hospital adds on, and a month or two after that, another hospital, so on and so forth. And you look at the before and after for each hospital. The reason to do this is it tells you what really works in real life. Hospitals are allowed to learn from experience, and it takes out any kind of seasonal variation that you saw more MIs and during Christmas than you did during the rest of the year. So the first part is gestalt, and the second part is what happens with an intervention when we're talking about applying risk scores as the intervention. Now that has been done. This paper was published this year. It looked at the before and after effect of applying the heart score to seven emergency departments around Amsterdam and Holland. And unfortunately, it turned out to not to work very well. And Simon's going to go through a lot of the reasons uh, that occurred after this. Having said that the heart score could have discharged more patients that are low risk, this was surprising to all of us, expected this to be an effective trial. This was followed by iCare ACS, and this was a different trial using a higher sensitive cronin in New Zealand. Now, I want to put this in context. New Zealand is about 5 million people. And in 2014, the Ministry of Health said you all, and by that he means all the emergency departments, will start using a clinical pathway and they must incorporate an accelerated diagnostic protocol whenever they see somebody who's got suspected acute coronary syndromes. And so that's documented in the chart. It makes it very simple to do studies. So Martin Fan is the PI there. I helped work on this. We got seven acute care hospitals to participate, and we did 31,000 patients in a before and after step wedge design. Hospitals were monitored for four months, then they put in their new pathway, and then we followed them for at least six months after. The ones who came early were followed for a year. The ones who came late were followed for six months. And the outcome measure is how many people were discharged. That means alive and well for the next 30 days within six hours of presentation. This strategy was agnostic to the troponin platform, meaning we didn't care what troponin you used. You could use the new Roche Gen 5. You could use the Abbott Architect or the Siemens Ultra. These are all high-sensitive troponins used in that part of the world. It was also agnostic to the risk stratification tool. You could use the EDAX, you could use TIM, and you could use HART, you could use whatever you wanted, but you had to use one. And you can see five of the hospitals used the EDAX, two used the TIMI. And then we applied what is the Society of Chest Pain Center's guidelines. Now, they have since merged the ACC, so you'll see the American College of Cardiology guidelines, to form this group called the Accreditation Management Board of the ACC. But the bottom line is the old Society of Chest Pain Center protocol, which is this. You had to have a clinical pathway. Clinical pathway consists of a document that's written down. It says you will have structured risk ratification. In other words, use a score. You will have specific times for the EKG under 10 minutes, and you'll have serial troponins drawn soon after arrival. We didn't specify whether you repeated it two hours or three hours or what, 
and you would have directions for what to do when patients are low risk and what to do when they're high risk. That is the clinical pathway, and then we evaluated it. There were 11,000 patients enrolled before and 19,000 patients enrolled after. And from that, the six-hour discharge rate went from 8 to 18%. That's a 240% increase. So this is the number of people that can be discharged from the implementation of a clinical pathway. The patients who did not have acute coronary syndromes, in other words, ruled out by the pathway, their length of stay dropped by three hours. And if you don't think three hours is important, you don't work in the ER. That means they can be discharged now. If they were discharged within six hours, there's no change in 30-day MACE rates. There's about a half percent before and about a half percent after. The p-value is the same. There were no adverse events if the clinical pathways were followed. So I wanted to go through that because it's sort of interesting to see what happened here. So before, there were five patients who had adverse events in the standard of care group, one non-STEMI, four deaths. In the 16 patients in the follow-up group, eight non-STEMI, a STEMI, a VTAC, a pause on a pacer, and five all-cause deaths. But when you break them down into the violations, there were 16 protocol violations. In other words, every single patient in the post-implementation group had a preventable adverse event. There were 12 patients sent home with positive troponins, and you got to ask, why were they sent home with positive troponins? And there were two people with risk scores did the cut point that their hospital was using. So that would have been one for TEMI or 15 for EDAX because they were using high-sense troponins. And there were two coded errors. They were coded as non-STEMI readmissions when they actually came back for a scheduled stress test. So following the protocol, uh, had it been followed exactly, would have provided a almost zero adverse cardiac event rate. But even with human error, which you will always have, there is no difference in the before or after adverse cardiac event rate. So implementation of clinical pathways for suspected ACS reduces the emergency department length of stay and increases the number of patients that can be discharged within six hours safely. And with that, I think you need to include a decision rule. This idea that Gestalt somehow works is bogus. It's not, there's no studies that support that. But the reality is you don't need a decision rule. You need an accelerated diagnostic pathway. And thanks, Dr. Peacock. That actually leads us right into our next speaker. Dr. Mahler, how do we actually go about implementing these pathways? Right now we're getting to the really to the hard part. The research that we've done on ADPs, relatively easy. Actually putting it into place in the real world and making it work, getting high adherence and adoption, and having that be sustainable, that's where the real challenge comes in. So I do have some disclosures that I just want to make public. The big question is how do we go from the literature that both Eric and Frank so eloquently describe to something that is going to be adopted and adhered to and then sustained? So I'm going to try to outline some potential strategies, but first I want to talk about how something failed, and Frank alluded to this the hard score. So even our best ideas are only going to be as good as the implementation. And so there's a lot of good evidence that supported the hard score uh, leading up to this uh, implementation study. This was a step wedge design, similar to what Frank described in the eye care study in New Zealand, and uh, it had very disappointing results. They showed only a 3% reduction in hospitalizations, and that wasn't a statistically significant difference. In no difference in length of stay, and actually showed that outpatient clinic visits increased during the, the hard score arm of the study. 
And so why did this happen? Well, they, they had 36% of their low-risk heart score patients which had prolonged observations, and they had non-adherence in 41% of low-risk patients, and then also non-adherence in 12% of their high-risk patients. So what are the conclusions that we can draw from this study? What's the interpretation? Is it that we should throw out the heart score and all the prior data, or maybe is it the way that they rolled out the heart score at these hospitals that just didn't work? And I think it's clear when you look at the adherence data that they fell short on the implementation side. And despite having a tool that in other places and settings and in, in other studies has worked, it didn't work in this particular study. So here are some keys as I see them to successful ADP implementation. And this is speaking from uh, experience of rolling out our heart pathway ADP within the Wake Forest Health System within three hospitals now, and existing with other hospitals rolling out the heart pathway really throughout the, the country. So the keys are to get stakeholder buy-in. You need to have champions. Uh, you need to have somebody who's willing to go to the mat and really promote the ADP, whatever that ADP is, whether it's EDAX, the heart pathway, or, you know, a TIMI-based ADP like ADAPT, you need to have somebody who is well-versed in it and is going to uh, fight the battle. Education is a key component. And then considering workflow uh, and then balancing measures, are there other things, uh, unintended consequences that are going to come up? The bottom line with this is you have to make this easy and the ADP has to fit well within the current workflow of your ED providers. And right now, when you're talking about the workflow of most ED providers, that involves the electronic medical records. So to the extent that this can be integrated into that electronic medical record can, can assist with making this work in the current workflow. And then you have to track outcomes and adherence. It's not just good enough to set it and forget it, to just turn it on and then hope it works. You have to monitor and see whether or not people are using it and you're getting the effects that you had desired when you rolled it out. So let's dig into some of these a little bit further. I'm going to use the heart pathway as an example. When we sought to roll out the heart pathway, we engaged multiple stakeholders across a number of different disciplines. We engaged our health system leadership, of course IT, as we look to build the heart pathway into our electronic health records. We engaged with nursing leadership, with our APPs, and then we got buy-in from all of the relevant clinician groups that touched a patient that has chest pain. So we had to get buy-in from our cardiovascular service lines. So cardiology, we got buy-in from our primary care specialists. So from both family medicine, internal medicine, we got buy-in from our hospitalists, and of course, we had to get buy-in from our emergency medicine group, which you might think that was easy since the heart pathway came from our emergency medicine group, but uh, even our group had people that were initially reluctant to adopt a ADP or, or change the way that they care for patients. So speaking of workflow, we integrated the heart pathway into our electronic medical record. We did so back in November of 2014, and we're on the EPIC, and so you can see, those of you who are familiar with EPIC, and see a best practice advisory. And so what the, the key here is not to go into, I, I don't have 
time to, to go in depth into how our system works in electronic medical record, but the key in terms of getting buy-in was to make sure it triggered on the right patient and make sure it triggered to the right provider and that it was occurring at the right time and so that we weren't bothering our providers are already taxed with lots of pop-ups. There's a huge amount of pop-up fatigue, alert fatigue, and so you need to make this easy and straightforward and not bother the wrong providers or on the wrong patients or happening at a time when they either already made their decision or they don't even have the data available to make a decision. So we also tracked adherence, and so we did weekly reports. So when a patient came in with chest pain and uh, troponin was ordered, that pop-up would come up and they would go in and fill out the uh, information required to calculate a uh, risk assessment based on the heart pathway. And we would run weekly reports to make sure that our providers were doing that. So when it was triggered, did they actually go in and complete their assessment? So what we would do is we'd identify providers that did not take action when they should have and that did not fill out the risk assessment. Those providers would be identified for corrective education, and there was some shaming involved in terms of providers seeing kind of where they stacked up in regards to adherence relative to their peers. So we also tracked uh, outcomes, looking at utilization rates, hospitalization, stress testing, recurrent care, and of course safety, making sure that we achieved the kind of outcomes that we wanted to, and of course made these successes, trumpeted them to our clinicians to further kind of accelerate or, or sustain the level of adherence that we had. So one of the major barriers, and we just actually recently completed a study where we did key informant interviews at four health systems in various stages of contemplation of implementing an accelerated diagnostic protocol, particularly thinking about putting that, them into their electronic medical record. And there are a couple of themes when it came to determining what they thought their main barriers were. One was getting all the stakeholders to agree, so getting all of those key stakeholders that I mentioned all on the same page can be a big challenge, and that was identified by our sites as a challenge. And then also uh, a huge issue was limited IT resources. And in particular, this came uh, with the time of prioritization. If your hospital is like my hospital and, and like the hospitals that were in this, this particular study, the IT folks are already maxed out in terms of what's on their plate just to keep the clinical operations going, make sure the bills go out, and they don't have a lot of time for custom bills. They lack, many of these sites lack expertise in custom bills, and CDS is clinical decision support. They, they don't have experience putting in any kind of complicated risk calculators. And then there's the issue of then once you've got it up and running, you have to maintain it. And uh, if it, uh, it needs to be updated or if it's not working correctly, someone has to go in and fix it. So this can become a, a burden for IT and a major barrier to getting something like this done at a, a hospital. And that's going to wrap it up on this particular ASAP Equal podcast on how we can go about ruling low-risk chest pain patients out.
And all those listeners out there, thank you so much for giving us your time today. You can find the rest of our ASAP Equal series through the Academic Life in Emergency Medicine feed through Apple Podcasts. You can read our associated blog posts at www.aliem.com. You can find me on Twitter at jwoodsmd or via email at littlepatientsbigmedicine at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening.